Hello everyone, welcome to Stories for Colored Girls. This is episode three. So this podcast is to empower black women by recognizing their equal value and worth as human beings and as participants in this world in every category. Acknowledging the trauma, oppression, and marginalization they experience daily, whether they're aware of it or not, to acknowledge the crooked room, and to practice standing straight inside of it. So today I will be talking about Claudia McTeer. Well, if you don't recognize that name, it could be because she's a fictional character and she narrates the story of Pecola Breedlove in Toni Morrison's first novel, The Bluest Eye. So most of the information I'm sharing this episode is coming from my own personal experiences and the book, The Bluest Eye itself. So I chose Claudia because every time I read The Bluest Eye, she reminds me of myself when I was a little girl. Also, this little girl, during the course of the book, she has no idea. But as I'm reading it, it hits me just how much bravery and resilience she has. Like the, the time that she lived, I believe it was supposed to be after, after the Great Depression in Ohio. And Ohio is definitely not a place that people run to anymore for industry and jobs. And it's not exactly an upcoming progressive place. It wasn't then either. And that's the kind of place that she grew up in. She's extremely resilient, though. And so I've, I've been wanting to I've been wanting to introduce her for maybe I wanted to do her on the first episode, but I thought maybe it would be better to bring a couple of real people in before I bring in a fictional character. That's something that I plan on doing again, not just from books, but also from movies and other works of art. So... Anyway, moving back to Miss Claudia, I wrote a blog, I read a blog article a few years ago, and it made me think of her character and the experiences that I have when I'm reading or rereading The Bluest Eye. And I can't remember the woman who wrote the blog, and I'm not going to read it, but she said something to the effect of, if you weren't a black girl, you can't be a black woman. So in essence, her point was, no. You don't get to jump up and be like, oh, well, I changed my hair and clothes to what I think a woman who's black would look like. I've always liked black things, black people. I feel like a black woman. And, you know, I I think that I'm black. So this is what I'm thinking, that this person's guessing what they think a black woman feels, thinks, experiences, whatever. And they're just reading from a script and playing a role. So then they're altering their body to what they think a black woman is supposed to look like. So to me, that shows their true colors or their lack of colors. Because if you were really a black woman, you wouldn't need to change your body at all, your name or your exterior to fit this stereotypical mold. You would just be you. You would just grow up from a black girl into a black woman. That easy. So I don't want to say her name, but the author of this blog was talking about the white woman um, who ran around claiming that she was black. It was, yeah, it was during that dark time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so unfortunately, I actually came across another woman like that. Um, I could tell right away that she was a complete and total mess. I was like, okay, you're clearly not black. But that really, it really bothered me and it upset me and I wasn't exactly sure why. Then when I read this blog article, I was like, that's it. Not the only thing for sure, but that's one of them that like you haven't had the experiences that a lot of us have had. No, of course, it would be different, you know, different generations, different countries, different cultures, whatever. But there are some 
experiences that a lot of us seem to have in common, especially when it comes to self-hate, when it comes to sexual discrimination, when it comes to European beauty standards and us trying to mold ourselves to them, and in the process, hurting ourselves. I've seen many a black woman whose hairline has disappeared because of so many relaxers that she did. So that's, I've seen that all over the place. So we're not the only ones. Um, okay, so back to The Bluest Eye and Claudia McTeer, for those of you who haven't read it or don't know what she's about. So as I was reading this book, it really struck me, her character, but the whole book itself is probably my favorite book in the entire world. So it really struck me because so many of the experiences that I've had, not just when I was a kid, my whole life, but especially growing up because the narrator, Claudia, she's a child. And so she's kind of talking to you about her growing up experiences and the people that she talks about and that she talks to in the novel are mostly other children. So <laughs> when I first read The Blue Eye, I was a teenager or like 12, very close to being a teenager. And it was like she was saying things that I wanted to say, but I had no idea how to say them. And so as I was reading, I would just be like, yes. I could never explain it. I didn't know what that interaction meant. It always went over my head. Um, I think it's because adults and children were treating me a certain way. I didn't know what it meant. I knew that it was not good, like less than human, less than the basics that I'd seen other people being treated as, but I didn't know what that meant. I couldn't put it into words. And even now, because those experiences that I had are a part of those memories, my child memories, sometimes I still have a hard time putting words to them as an adult because they didn't happen to me when I was an adult and when I had words to, um, to explain and express what I was going through. So when people treat me poorly as an adult, you know, I get it. I understand lots of things that I didn't know what I was experiencing, but over the years I've been able to find names for them and I feel so much better because I'm like, yes, that's a thing. It has a name. Other women talk about it, blog about it. We have, an, it has a name now, like sexism, patriarchy, misogynoir, sexual harassment. But like as a child, I didn't know any of those concepts at all. I did know what a racist, I didn't know what racism was, unfortunately. Um, I knew how a racist person would treat a person of color. Like, oh, that's something someone would do if, they were racist, but I didn't really know um, exactly what it would look like if it was directed at me, a little girl like me, a black girl. So there were a lot of things that I, um, I actually took ownership over growing up, like uh, these experiences. They had nothing to do with me. I just didn't know at the time. And I actually think that many little black girls are to some degree broken, first by their parents, then by their siblings and extended family, and third, by their teachers, schools, and the education systems before they're totally broken by their experiences in the world as adults. So normally I don't like to refer to people as broken. Things, objects get broken, not people. But I think referring to people as broken or damaged is another way of objectifying them, at least to some degree. So when I say broken, I mean trauma in the overwhelming sense of there's something wrong with you, you're unacceptable, don't deserve good things, or people in your life, that feeling is shame. So all of this results in broken spirits, broken hearts, 
twisted bodies that can't help but snap and break. Each time someone pushes us too far or in the wrong direction, you push something in the wrong direction, it breaks. You put too much pressure on it. Something somewhere is going to break. So Claudia McTeer, Claudia McTeer, she lived in a small town in Ohio. She was nine. Her older sister Frida was ten. She lived with her mother and father, and in the story, they're actually not, they're actually not given names. Her parents are not given first names. And because people of color discriminate, white people created and practice racism, men created and perpetuate patriarchy, and women uphold it, Claudia was forced, like all black girls and women, to the very bottom of the social ladder, and that's basically what this book is about. So, as a matter of fact, I was reading, I was rereading the book, and in the prologue, Toni Morrison talks about this when she was talking about creating the book and how she wanted her readers to think and feel after reading it. So this is a direct quote from her prologue. One problem was centering the weight of the novel's inquiry on so delicate and vulnerable a character could smash her and lead readers into the comfort of pitying her rather than into an interrogation of themselves for the smashing. So I'm not exactly sure when it hit me but after rereading this book, maybe a few times, I was an adult this time reading it. And it was like, there was this particular passage. And it was like my eyes. All of a sudden, I could see the words. Like they were popping out of the page. But before they weren't popping out of the page, I was just reading it to get through it. But after you've had a certain experience, you read a passage again. You're like, I know exactly what that means. Before, I had no idea. I didn't get the nuance at all. But this time when I was reading, I could see myself as some of the adult characters. I never could before because I was, I was a kid. So I saw how I, like the adult characters in the book, have been practicing and reinforcing ideas of white supremacy and male supremacy to other women and to kids. So this time I wasn't reading the book as like a, a helpless child, an innocent bystander, but as an adult who's passed on some incredibly damaging ideas about black womanhood and supported others who did as well. So Claudia and her family lived in a somewhat decrepit house. <laughs> Their house was covered in roaches and rats, which is completely disgusting. And it's in Ohio too, so it's freezing cold. Ugh, super gross. So anyway, they're living in this racially mixed working class neighborhood. Claudia in the book describes their house as old, cold, and green. So they rented out a room to a tenant named Mr. Henry Washington. And Claudia's family was living paycheck to paycheck in this book. And the lack of money and other resources were a constant source of stress. Even her as a child, she realized this was a problem. Their lack of money and what a hard time her mother especially had dealing with it. So this trickled down to her. And in the book, she talks about her fear of homelessness. And I'm going to read the passage because I think it is so funny. And also just the way she articulates it. So she says, there's a difference between being put out and being put outdoors. <laughs> if you're put out, you go somewhere else. If you're outdoors, there's no place to go. The distinction was subtle but final. Outdoors was the end of something, an irrevocable physical fact, defining and complementing our metaphysical condition. Being a minority in both case and class, we moved about anyway on the hem of life, struggling to consolidate our weak weaknesses and hang on, or to creep singly up into the major folds of the garment. Our peripheral existence, however, was something we had learned to deal with, probably because it was at <clears throat> 
Sorry about that. Probably because it was abstract. But the concreteness of being outdoors was another matter. Like the difference between the concept of death and being in fact dead. Dead doesn't change and outdoors is here to stay. (laughs) So sometimes Claudia's parents would act as foster parents to children in their community. So in this story, her family takes in a little girl named Pocola Breedlove. Now, although Pocola is the central character in this novel, Claudia is also crucial to the storyline. So I find her, Claudia, extremely empowering. And so I just listed out a few reasons because I could have literally gone through the book and highlighted a lot of stuff. And that probably would have been way too much. So I narrowed it down to three. Lucky number three. So she's perceptive. She's incredibly perceptive. Enough to understand that her parents equate whiteness with beauty. That's a huge, huge theme running through this book. And that she's going to be punished anytime she doesn't conform to and share these beliefs. Second, she's one of the few children who befriend Pocola Breedlove. She's the main character. And other children and adults abuse her throughout the entire book. And Claudia had lots of opportunities. She probably would have been accepted and liked better by some of her other peers. But still, she didn't demean Pocola at all, like the rest of them. She stands up for her, as a matter of fact, even though she knew that she'd be physically threatened, too. There's a point in the book where some boys are surrounding Pocola, and they're making fun of her, and they're closing in on her. And Claudia and Frida come up, and they decide, okay, I could jump in this and get beat down too or I could just walk away pretend like I didn't see it but no they decide to go in there and stop that get away from her and they stand up for her even though they could have been hurt and they could have gotten in trouble when they got home so last she questions white supremacy in the story and one way that she does this is that she rips apart white baby dolls she talks about how she gets white baby dolls for Christmas and how that's just the ultimate gift adults see it as the ultimate gift but she doesn't understand she's like what is it about this doll that you want me to love so much and that I'm supposed to be so excited about so she rips apart white baby dolls trying to find out what makes them so beautiful and wanted instead of just accepting white beauty standards because her parents and her peers tell her to and they expect her to They expect her to love the white baby doll. And she talks about in the book how no one ever asked her what she wanted for Christmas. They just automatically assumed, hey, you're a little black girl. You're going to want something beautiful and attractive. A white baby doll. What else, right? What else could you possibly dream of but being a mother to this white baby doll? And she didn't understand it. And she did see, though, that they thought it was important and valuable because... (laughs) Because when she ripped up her baby dolls, the adults would be so mad at her and they would sputter. And I'm trying to think my mom does this exact same thing. They would fuss, not to your face, of course, but like in the next room, they would just be fussing and walking back and forth without saying it to your face, of course, but just walking around so you could hear it. Never directly, never have a direct interaction. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to read the passage from the book. It's a couple pages. Stick with me. But I'm just going to read it straight. So it had begun with Christmas and the gift of dolls. The big, the special, the loving gift was always a big blue-eyed baby doll. From the clucking sounds of adults, I knew that the doll represented what they thought was my fondest wish. I was bemused with the thing itself and the way it looked. What was I supposed to do with it? Pretend I was its mother? I had no interest in babies or the concept of motherhood. 
I was interested only in humans my own age and size and could not generate any enthusiasm at the prospect prospect of being a mother. Motherhood was old age and other remote possibilities. <laughs> I learned quickly, however, what I was expected to do with the doll. Rock it, fabricate, storied situations around it, even sleep with it. Picture books were full of little girls sleeping with their dolls. Raggedy Ann dolls usually, but they were out of the question. I was physically revolted by and secretly frightened of those round moronic eyes, the pancake face, and orange worm's hair. The other dolls, which were supposed to bring me great pleasure, succeeded in doing quite the opposite. When I took it to bed, its hard, unyielding limbs resisted my flesh. The tapered fingertips on those dimpled hands scratched. If in sleep I turned, the bone-cold head collided with my own. It was the most uncomfortable, patently aggressive sleeping companion. To hold it was more, oh sorry, to hold it was no more rewarding. The starched gauze or lace on the cotton dress irritated any embrace. I had only one desire, to dismember it. <laughs> to see what it was made of. To discover the dearness, to find the beauty, desirability that had escaped me, but apparently only me. Adults, older girls, shops, magazines, newspapers, window signs. All the world had agreed that a blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll was what every girl child treasured. Here, they said, this is beautiful, and you are on this day worthy, and you may have it. I fingered the face, wondering at the single-stroke eyebrows, picked at the pearly teeth stuck like two piano keys between red bovine lips, traced the turned-up nose, poked the glassy blue eyeballs, I twisted the yellow hair. I could not love it, but I could examine it to see what all the world said was lovable. Break off the tiny fingers, bend the flat feet, loosen the hair, twist the head around, and the thing made one sound, a sound, <laughs> the sweet and plaintive cry, Mama, but which sounded to me like the bleat of a dying lamb, or more precisely, our icebox door opening on its run rusty hinges in July, remove the cold and stupid eyeball, and it would still bleed, ugh, take off the head, shake out the sawdust, crack the back against the brass bed rail, it would still bleed. The gauze back was split, and I could see the disc with six holes. The secret of the sound. A mere metal roundness. Grown people frowned and fussed. You don't know how to take care of nothing. I never had a baby doll in my whole life. I used to cry my eyes out for them. Now you got a beautiful one and you tear it up. What's the matter with you? How strong was their outrage. Tears threatened to erase the aloofness of their authority. The emotion of years of unfulfilled longing preened in their voices. I didn't know why I destroyed those dolls, but I did know that no one ever asked me what I wanted for Christmas. Had any adult with the power to fulfill my desires taken me seriously and asked what I wanted, they would have known I didn't want to have anything to own or to possess any object. I wanted rather to feel something on Christmas Day. Now, this last part is a story that Claudia tells us. It's one of the it's one of the saddest in the entire story, I think. And it really um it brings together a lot of the things that Claudia has been talking about the entire book to someone who doesn't really know much about self-hate, European beauty standards, how women of color twisting and tort themselves to meet those standards, how women of color and men hold those standards against us. They teach us to suppress who we are and to go ahead and follow those European beauty standards and that's the only and the best way to be. So to tie a lot of those things together and to have a 
an example in the story of when children are involved, they're talking to each other, but also there's an adult pushing those standards on them. And for one of the first times in the story, I think this is the first and maybe the last time, a white person appears in the story. So this is from the perspective of Claudia, and like I said, she's super perceptive, and then also Toni Morrison, very well educated, is writing in her voice. So she's going to talk about her observations and then she's also going to talk about her perceptions so things that aren't necessarily like observable facts but her lived experience as a young black girl things that she knows from that lived experience so Claudia and her sister Frida are going for a walk one afternoon and they walk past where Pecola's mom works so Pecola's mom works in this big fancy house owned by this rich white family and I think she's they don't say exactly but I want to say she's a maid, a cook, and I think she's also a nanny. So she does all those three jobs for those white people, and she absolutely loves her job with them, and she gives them more love and kindness and acceptance than she gives her own black family. Another theme running through the book. So Claudia and Frida come up on Pecola. Hey, how are you? Whatever, they're having a conversation. And so this is what happens next. This is where I'm going to pick up the story. Mrs. Breedlove says Pecola's mom. Mrs. Breedloves took her head out of the door and said, What's going on out here? Pecola, who are these children? That's Frida and Claudia, Mrs. Breedlove. Whose girls are you? She came all the way out on the stoop. She looked nicer than I had ever seen her, in her white uniform and her hair and a small pompadour. Mrs. McTeer's girls, ma'am. Oh, yes. Live over on 21st Street? Yes, ma'am. What are you doing way over here? Just walking. We came to see Pecola. Well, you better get on back. You can walk with Pecola. Come on in while I get the wash. We stepped into the kitchen, a large, spacious room. Mrs. Bree Love's skin glowed like taffeta in the reflection of white porcelain, white woodwork, polished cabinets, and brilliant copperware. Odors of meat, vegetables, and something freshly baked mixed with the scent of Fell's naphtha. I have no idea what that is or if I said it right. I'm going to get the wash. You all stand right there and don't mess up nothing. <laughs> That's such a black mom thing to say. It reminds me of my mom giving us a lecture or I guess a warning threat, whatever, before we would go into a store. We're going to get in this store and y'all don't touch nothing <laughs> because she was because, you know, the rule of stores, you break it, you buy it. And she was like, y'all aren't going to break anything because I'm not buying nothing. So get it together. Stick close to me. Don't touch nothing. <laughs> so that's basically that's basically what Pecola's mom just did to all three of them. I'm going to go get the wash. Y'all stand rock still right there and don't mess up nothing. So she disappeared behind a white swinging door and we could hear the uneven flap of her footsteps as she descended into the basement. Another door opened and in walked a little girl, smaller and younger than all of us. She wore a pink sunback dress and pink fluffy bedroom slippers with two bunny ears pointed up from the tips. Her hair was corn yellow and bound in a thick ribbon. When she saw us, fear danced across her face for a second. She looked anxiously around the kitchen. Where's Polly? She asked. The familiar violence rose up in me. Her calling Mrs. Breelove Polly, even when Pecola called her mother Mrs. Breelove, seemed reason enough to scratch her. (laughs) She's downstairs, I said. Polly, she called. Look, Frida whispered. Look at that. On the counter near the stove in a silvery pan was a deep dish berry cobbler purple juice bursting here and there through crust we move closer 
It's still hot, Frida said. Bacola stretched her hand to touch the pan lightly to see if it was hot. Polly, come here, the little girl yelled again. Sorry, the little girl called again. Whatever, I imagine this little heifer yelling because she's scared because she's never seen three black girls before. Only her precious Polly. So anyway, it may have been nervousness, awkwardness, mm, but the pan tilted under Pacola's fingers and fell to the floor, splattering blackish blueberries everywhere. Most of the juice splashed on Pacola's legs, and the burn must have been painful, for she cried out and began hopping about, just as Mrs. Breedlove entered with a tightly packed laundry bag. In one gallop, she was on Pacola, and with the back of her hand knocked her to the floor, Pacola slid in the pie juice, one leg folding under her. Mrs. Breedlove yanked her up by the arm, slapped her again, and in a voice thin with anger, abused Pacola directly, and Frida and me by implication. Crazy fool! My four! Mess, look what you work. Get on out. Now that crazy, my floor, my floor. Interesting how she's saying my as if this house belongs to her. Moving on. But that's how she feels about the white people's house. Like a sense of belonging, ownership, possession. Like she's a part of their family. Some foolish idea like that. They would sell her out in a minute. Her words were hotter and darker than the smoking berries. And we backed away in dread. The little girl in pink started to cry. Mrs. Breedlove turned to her. Hush, baby, hush. Come here. Oh, Lord, look at your dress. Don't cry no more. Polly will change it. She went to the sink and turned tap water on a fresh towel. Over her shoulder, she spit out words to us like rotten pieces of apple. Pick up that wash and get on out of here so I can get this mess clean up. Pacola picked up the laundry bag, heavy with wet clothes, and we stepped hurriedly out the door. As Pacola put the laundry bag in the wagon, we could hear Mrs. Breedlove hushing and soothing the tears of the little pink and yellow girl. Who were they, Polly? Oh, don't worry, Annie. You gonna make another pie? Of course I will. Who were they, Polly? Hush, don't worry, none, she whispered, and the honey in her words complimented the sundown spilling on the lake. Man, huge, literal, <laughs> literal slap in the face. That's, uh, that, and uh, that's just so heartbreaking and awful. I have not had any experiences exactly like that, but I have definitely had experiences where black adults, it seemed in my childhood, chose white children, especially white girls, over me. It's as if if you're a black girl, you don't get to be a little girl. Like you're immediately vilified, like you're an adult. Um, as if you can't make mistakes, you can't learn from them, there are no accidents. Everything you do is intentional. You're just a villain from the womb. Even black adults who have been children, they vilify you too, even though you, you would think that they would know better. I had experiences like that growing up where my parents other black adults, my older siblings, they could have been on my side, but they chose not to, and I didn't understand why. I thought it was me. And now I realize, oh, okay, racism, self-hate, you know, just because you're a person of color and you experience racism does not mean you don't discriminate against other people of color, too, and try to punish them for not acting in a certain way. Like, look, this is how you're supposed to act. This is what you're supposed to do. Have you lost your dag on mine? You can't be doing and saying stuff like that. And they will whip you back into shape real quick and real fast. Just like Pacola's mom yanked her black behind up. Poor thing. I know exactly what it is to be yanked. <laughs> when when you have a very simple childlike mistake. But like I said, it's like you don't get to be a child. You get punished hard. I understand part of that is... 
because they're sending you off into a world that's going to punish you hard, not get, you're not going to get any favors, nepotism, white privilege. And so they're trying to teach you hard. But in that, it teaches you shame that there's something wrong with you. Because I mean, you're born black, you don't get to make that choice. And that's not something you can change. So to say that something's wrong with you because you're black, or you're behaving a certain way, that shaming that like you were just born that way, you're just born bad, nothing you can do about it. Claudia, her character, the things she experienced, that story, perfect example. That story is so nasty and awful. I think the first few times I read it, I was like physically tensing up. It's just so scary and sad and shaming. Like I can feel tears coming up in my in the back of my eyes and burning as I some of the not just now, but times before when I read it because it's so humiliating in front of your friends, in front of that little girl, just such an awful experience. And so this is, Claudia serves up a lot of things like this within the story from her vantage point. And from this innocent little girl vantage point, she's telling you all these nasty, horrible things she experienced that you would hope that no child would experience and certainly that we wouldn't be making our own children experience but we are which goes back to the prologue of what Toni Morrison said she doesn't just want you to get to know Claudia and her story and Pecola's story and feel pity for them that they're being smashed but to take accountability and realize you're partly responsible in their smashing so you're supporting and perpetuating white supremacy and you're hurting these little girls too. Not okay, so not to the same degree as the man. That's true. <laughs> but still, you are. So that's why I love Claudia McTeer. That's why I love her character. She was probably one of the first characters in fiction that I related to personally said things that I had didn't have the words to say didn't understand and then coming back and reading it as an adult I started to identify with those characters as well and see how I had participated in hurting little girls like Claudia and that concludes episode three I hope all of you read or reread the bluest eye if you know if you've already and that you feel empowered as you come to know Miss Claudia so until next time remember to stand up straight <laughs>